like the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to be beginning today with verse 36 and actually finish this chapter. We're moving right along. We're almost a third of the way into the book of Luke. (laughs) There's so many things I could say about chapter 7 that I haven't said, but I decided if we said it all, we would never finish Luke, so uh, we're going to move on. You know, most likely, uh, as we come to the end of this section and this uh, visit to Simon's house, we're at, um, we're still in the village of Nain, most likely. We kind of started out with Jesus and his disciples uh, heading that direction and encountering a widowed woman uh, in a funeral procession, leaving the village with her only son, uh, who had died, and the mourners, and Jesus stops the procession and brings her son to life and gives him back to her. There's nothing that will draw a crowd like raising someone from the dead. And uh, all of a sudden, people are all around Jesus, and he has a ministry there in this area of uh, healing the sick and casting out demons and um, you know, doing all kinds of miraculous works, and we don't know how long he really stayed there. You kind of sense that it was more than just a day, but uh, during that time frame, um, a Pharisee by the name of Simon invites him to dinner, and uh, the purpose of that is to uh, kind of get to know him and see what he's about, and while they're uh, at dinner, a woman shows up, a woman who is known in the town, and not in a good way. And she shows up and begins to express her gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for her. So with that background, I uh, wanted you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 36, Luke chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man or a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is, and who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Uh, Go in peace. Now before we jump into this (coughs) event (coughs) in earnest, I want to just to make some general observations about the story because there are some interesting uh, facts about it. For one thing, many of the Pharisees are decidedly opposed to Jesus. They are are seeking to trap him. They're arguing with him. uh, They are doing everything they can to uh, cast him in a bad light. This Pharisee, whose uh, name is Simon, as we learn, is not in that same camp. He's not overly affectionate toward Jesus, as we'll see, but he's not particularly opposed. As far as he's concerned, the jury's still out. And he's um, trying to kind of assess the situation. And so he proposes a dinner meeting. Invites him over for dinner. And the purpose of the dinner in that context is to have a discussion. So you have a nice dinner and then you have a discussion which in that culture could have been an argument or debate that may have gone on for hours. But Simon is interested in kind of finding out what makes Jesus tick. The second thing that I observe about this event is that This is a cultural disaster. All kinds of cultural norms and social mores are just totally disregarded in this event. This story goes off the wire very quickly. And, um, you know, it just kind of leaves us saying, wow, how did that uh, get into the condition it got into? Because from from the beginning, not from the woman showing up, but from the beginning, this story is off track according to their culture. I'm not suggesting to you that the, the scripture has, a, has an issue. The Bible is reporting factually and without error what happened. But the story itself um, gives us insight into something that is just almost on the left foot from, from the gate. Another interesting thing is that this Pharisee is named while the woman is not. We don't know exactly who she is. Uh, Some have suggested that she's Mary Magdalene um, because of some of the um, suggestions in the uh, verse 21 of Luke that he cast demons out of many who came to him in this area and she was among those to whom he administered and they try to make that connection. Others have suggested that she is Mary of Martha and Lazarus, and, and even that uh, this woman and Mary and Martha uh, of Martha and Lazarus and Magdalene are all the same one. And I, I really like that. 
I, I'm, in, I, I'm inclined that way because it makes a great story. But unfortunately, I don't have any biblical proof for it. It's just impossible to say from the text that, that this is in fact the case. And one of the problems is, if they are still in Nain, as we assume they are, they're 65 miles from Bethany. And it's hard to imagine, not impossible, but difficult to imagine, that uh, this same person is showing up uh, all over the Palestinian geography uh, in one place or another. And then the fourth thing that I noticed in passing is that Jesus uh, has an interesting way of demonstrating that he is, in fact, a prophet. And in the, uh, the event that unfolds concerning what Simon is thinking, we get some insight into how spiritual gifts are supposed to operate within the body and among believers. Because if you recall from things we've studied in the past, Jesus was not omniscient on earth. He did not know everything. In fact, he was a person filled with the Holy Spirit, living under the control of the Holy Spirit, just as we are, which is why he said to his disciples, the spirit that has been in me is going to be in you. I'm going to give you the same spirit. He's been with you. He will be in you. And the things that you have seen me do, you will do also in greater things because I'm going to my Father and I'm going to give my spirit to you. And so Jesus is a man operating under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And what we actually have going on here is probably a word of knowledge. I've given some thought to this. And when I thought about the table arrangement, Jesus is sitting next to Simon, very close to him. And I think if Simon muttered this out loud, um, even under his breath, Jesus would have heard it. But in fact, I think Simon thought this. If he knew what kind of woman this was, you know, and, uh, you know, if he were really a prophet, he would have insight into this situation. And uh, Jesus has a word of knowledge that tells him what Simon is thinking. And um, from my background, for the time period that I was in charismatic circles, you know, anytime something supernatural like that happened, people were like, ooh, ooh, I have a word of knowledge, I have a word of knowledge, I want to tell everybody my word of knowledge, you know, or, oh, I have a prophecy, and they'd stand up and say, thus saith the Lord to thee, my children. I was always surprised that the Holy Spirit spoke in Elizabethan English in the 20th century, but everybody started out that way. And the net effect of that was to call attention to themselves. And... Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will call attention to me. He will bring your focus there. And uh, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit wasn't working necessarily in the lives of these individuals, but only that the way they reflected that work was a way that was experientially oriented and attentive to one's own self, as opposed to what Jesus does here. He takes this knowledge that the Holy Spirit has given him. And he says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. And as he begins to minister to Simon, you know, it becomes apparent, number one, he is a prophet because he knew what I was thinking. And number two, he's doing this in a way that's bringing conviction and focus in my heart. 
It's not about him. It's about me. And God has my number. And I, I think that's what really should happen when the Holy Spirit is working through us, that we should leave the focus on the Lord. I find that when a word of knowledge comes, um, many times it's so I will know how to pray for people. Sometimes God wants me to use it, but he wants me to use it in a way that draws attention to his work in their life. And uh, I find that, that I'm more likely to say something like, you know, as we've been talking, I, the thought has just come to me. Uh, could it be possible that the da-da-da-da-da is true? And if God is in fact working, um, there's spiritual ministry that goes on. Jesus kind of teaches us by example uh, how we should exercise supernatural spiritual gifts. Okay, that's a total parenthesis that has absolutely nothing to do with the message this morning, except that I thought it was beneficial to call attention to it as we go along. Let's talk about the event itself. And we, we have to go back and remind ourselves of what the culture was like. Simon as it turns out, is the name of the Pharisee, uh, invites Jesus to his home for a dinner because he wants to have this conversation. Now, what would that have looked like in the first century? What would that have looked like? They would have had a table that they would have been sitting around in the shape of a U or a horseshoe. Um, it would have been like that because the front of the table was left open for those who were bringing the food to continue to replenish the food and, and to bring uh, various courses in. And it was the custom for the head of the house to sit in the middle at the kind of the bottom of the U or the head of the table, however you want to look at that, to sit at the head of it and for the guest of honor to sit on his right. Now the other thing is, and some of you remember this a few years ago when we uh, did this on a Thursday night during our communion event uh, in Holy Week, the table would have been about the height of the chair you're sitting on. It, it wouldn't have been, you don't sit up to the table. Uh, the table was low, and there were cushions around it, and the guest would have sat up to the table, and, and I thought about trying to demonstrate this, but... If I did, several of you would have to come and help untangle me and get me up again. So I'm not, I'm not going to demonstrate this except to just kind of give you a little bit of a mental image. They would have sat leaning on their left hip on the cushion and their left elbow. And their legs would have been curled out behind them going that direction. And they would typically eat with their right hand. And they would all be sitting that way, so it works out very nicely that they're kind of all, you know, fitting into uh, the fan going around the table. And Jesus would have been sitting like that next to Simon. And uh, some of the things that were customary when you would invite guests over uh, is that, again, you would give your special guest the honored place to your right. And um, you would also, if there were a servant, it would be a servant, if not... Um, it would be uh, the, the, the head of the house, the host. 
you know, as the guests would come in, you've seen this in the movies and stuff like that, you know, they, they greet, big bear hug, kiss the left, kiss the right, um, greet them, and then they would have brought them in, and someone would have washed their feet because they wore these open sandal kind of things, and they got dusty and dirty, and let's face it, if you're going to sit around a table with your feet nearby, you kind of want them to be clean, and it was customary to wash the feet. Simon doesn't do any of this. You know, Jesus and his disciples come in and they just sit down or, or you know, recline at the table. Um, there's no water to wash. There's no uh, kissed greeting, typical. There's no anointing the head. Um, Simon is sending a signal. What he's saying is, I invited you here tonight because I want to hear what you have to say. But you and I are not on the same social level. We're not equals. And uh, I, I've got some reservations about you. So I want you to have dinner and I want to have a conversation. But he did not afford him the usual customary graces and um, courtesies of a friend, of an equal. It's very, very interesting. Now, the other thing that we know about the way that they had meals then and the way they have them now, for that matter, it hasn't changed in 3,000 years, there were no women at the table. They might occasionally bring in some food, but they ate somewhere else. The men were the ones who occupied the table. And there would not have been any women in this meeting. And then the whole atmosphere gets charged because in their dinner, in walks this woman. She's in the wrong place. She doesn't knock. <laughs> she just shows up. Alabaster bottle of perfume in hand, and she goes around to the head of the table behind Jesus, and she begins to weep. They're not tears of sorrow, they're tears of gratitude. They're tears of just overwhelming emotion and love and affection. And as she weeps, she kneels down and she begins to wet his feet as the tears fall from her face. And she lets her hair down. Whoa. This is really taboo. Uh, I read one commentator that said that in the culture, that would almost been equivalent to our culture being topless. To, to let your hair down in front of men in that circumstance was just like, oh my goodness. It just, but she didn't have a towel. She let her hair down. She began to wipe his feet. And then she begins to pour the perfume and she begins to kiss his feet. I have to wonder, you know, what made her feel like she could walk into this environment like that? She's obviously not as out of place as the guys are in the moment. 
there's no, suge- there's no direct suggestion in the scripture that her problem was sexual immorality. The text does not say that. But most people feel the implications hint at it. At any rate, she was well known in the town. And for not very good reasons. And so Simon is like, my dinner has been ruined. I can't believe this is happening. I brought this guy in here to see what he was like. And good grief. He's got this sinner crying over his feet. She let her hair down. She's, what is going on? If he knew, if he were a prophet, he would know. And so the implication of that is, he's obviously not a prophet. In fact, i got to wonder if he's not like her. What's the deal? And Jesus knows where his head is. And the scripture says that just as calmly as you please, Jesus kind of turns to Simon and says, Simon, I have a question for you. Well, okay. There was this money lender, and um, he lent these fellows some money, one of them 50 denarii, one of them 500. And neither one of them could pay him back. Now, remember what a denarius is? It's a full day's wage. 50 denarii is equivalent to six weeks of your paycheck. I don't know about you, but if I got a bill equal to six weeks of my paycheck, uh, it would, I, it, I would gasp. It would be shocking. How am I going to pay this? Because you've got to pay everything else. You've got to live. But 500, that's almost two years of your total pay. Boy, if you got that kind of bill, that's like a mortgage. It's like, now what? And neither one of them could pay him back. And the guy said, you know what? I'm just going to be gracious here. I see the predicament you're in. I'm going to forgive your debt. So Simon, tell me, which one of these two do you think is going to love that guy the most? (laughs) Simon says, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. It's obvious. The guy that was forgiven 500 denarii, he's going to love the most. And then Jesus drives home the point. He says, Simon, I want to tell you something. I came to your house tonight. You did not provide any water to wash my feet. They were dusty. They were dirty. I've been out there in the streets. And you let me come sit at this table with dusty, dirty feet, and you made no effort to help the situation. But since this woman came in, she has not stopped weeping over my feet and wiping them with her hair. I I hope you get that. That's nitty-gritty, friends. They were dirty feet. And she's 
invested in getting them clean. And then he says, Simon, you didn't kiss me. That was customary for guys to kiss. That's their culture. You know, greet one another, side to side thing. That's their culture. That was customary. You didn't kiss me. But she has not stopped kissing my feet since she's been here. And Simon, you didn't give me a single drop of oil for my head. Another customary thing. But she has poured this expensive perfume all over my feet and has not stopped caring for me since she came in. Simon, which one of you loves me the most? Now, this is, this is very fascinating to me because whether Simon muttered this or whether he thought it, it was kind of under his breath or just totally in his mind, but Jesus reveals that he's a prophet because he not only knows what kind of woman she is, he knows what kind of thoughts Simon had. And in the revelation that he's a prophet, Simon is making the connection, and now the conviction comes. Jesus has taken the story of the moneylender and driven it right home to Simon's heart. It's kind of like when Nathan says to David, David says, show me that man. I'll take care of him right now. Uh, David, you're the guy. And conviction falls. And Simon comes under conviction. We were having a conversation in the office the other day about uh, why some of the Pharisees are named and others are not. You know, you think about it. If you read a newspaper from 30 years ago here in McHenry and it named all these people, would you recognize any of them? Some of you might, but for the most part, it's like, who are they? Police blotter, who are they? You know, local politicians, I don't know. We tend not to think about stuff like that. I mean, we, we've lost those people. We've lost their names. You go back a hundred years and you don't remember anybody. Luke and the gospel writers record the names of three Pharisees for us. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and Simon. And probably the reason is because the church knew who they were. This gospel was written 25 or 30 years after Jesus did these things. But people probably knew them. Because in this moment, conviction falls on Simon. And if I have to guess, I would say that he eventually became a follower of Jesus because of this event. And then, as Jesus has had this conversation with Simon, get the picture. Simon's sitting here. Jesus is here. His feet are here. The woman is back here. He's been talking to Simon. They've been having this conversation about the moneylender. And oh, by the way, Simon. And then he turns, he looks at this woman as he brings this message home to Simon. And then he says, Your sins have been forgiven. Have been forgiven. 
He is not saying to her in this moment they're forgiven. He is saying to her they have been forgiven. Jesus has already had a ministry with this woman. That's why she's there. She has in her heart all the freshness, all the cleanness, all the joy, all the uh, blessing and the exuberance and the, oh, she's just overwhelmed. She's right with God again. Her whole life has been changed. She's intimate with the Lord in the right way. And now here's Jesus who has made it all possible and her love is just gushing out, uninhibited, just totally uh, enraptured by what's happened to her already. But the community doesn't know that. The community still thinks of this is so-and-so, that's, Sinful woman. And Jesus wants to set the record clear. In public, in front of the Pharisee, your sins have been forgiven. So that she can be restored to the community. So that her reputation can be changed openly by Jesus himself. And... As he does that, he says, your faith has made you whole, has saved you. Go in peace. And she goes her way. Dramatic, dramatic moment. I want to ask you a question. Who is the greatest sinner at this table? Be careful how you answer. Except for Jesus, they are all equal. There's no one worse and no one better. Yes, this woman has acted out in a way that has brought social disgrace, has ostracized her from the community of faith, but Jesus has already made it clear in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, as he taught the multitudes, that in the heart of every human being lurks the same sin that comes out in the expressions of outward behavior because defilement begins in the human heart, not in the behavior that issues from it. And the the primary difference between those who have done it and those who have only thought it may only be opportunity that we all are on a level playing field. But the problem is, is that in the human side, and to be honest, there are social consequences for sin. If you embezzle money, you very likely are going to end up in jail. There's a consequence. And those who may want it, but never take it, are not going to end up in jail. But from God's perspective, the person who wants their hand in the till and the person who puts their hand in the till are the same in their heart. The only thing is either fear or opportunity or uh, punishment, but the heart is the same. And... So the thing that the Holy Spirit longs to do in all of our lives 
is to bring us to that place where we understand the depth of our sin. Because the deepest love rises from the ashes of depravity and is clothed with the brokenness of humility. The deepest love rises from the ashes of depravity and is clothed with the brokenness of humility. And as we come to know Jesus Christ and we begin to follow him, we know that we've sinned, we know that we need a Savior, we, but let's face it, friends, except for those who have really come from the, from the, the, the degradation of total disaster, for many of us that awareness is heartfelt to an extent, but largely intellectual. We do feel conviction. We can point to things we've done wrong. We know that. We know that we need forgiveness. But few of us in the moment of salvation even begin to comprehend the depth of our depravity. And quite honestly, in order to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength, you really have to be in touch with how much you have been saved from. And it takes a while for us to come to that awareness. And God the Holy Spirit begins His work in our life as we go out on our journey of becoming Christ followers. God the Holy Spirit begins to work to bring us into connection with our depravity so that, first of all, we can learn to depend on Him. Listen, friends, as long as we think we can do something, we are not going to see a need for Him to do it. As long as we feel there are certain areas of our lives that I can handle this, then we're going to try to handle it. And... God hates the garment spotted by the flesh. It's always tainted and it's never adequate. And as long as we think we've got it covered, we keep bringing out this awful, foul-smelling stuff. We need to be convinced that there's nothing in us of... of, of Significant moral eternal value. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. And if we think we can, we're not going to rest on Him. And so the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to that place where we are convinced, not in our head, but in our heart, in our experience, that we can't pull it off. Unless God helps me, I am toast. I'm just done. It's not going to happen. Paul describes that experience in Romans chapter 7. You know the story. But he says, look, I was devoted. I was sincere. I intended to do the best of things. I had great goals. I was going to be 
excellent in all of my spiritual pursuits. And he said, the more I tried, the worse I failed. Everything I wanted to do, I found I couldn't do. And conversely, there were things I determined I was never going to do again. They were not going to be a part of my life. I was having nothing to do with this. And the harder I worked at avoidance, the more I fell into the trap. He gets to the end of a very long experience with almost a look of pained incredulity on his face, and he says, Wretched man that I am. There is nothing good in my flesh. There's nothing good. And friends, I want to remind you, and for some of you, you're hearing it for the first time, God wants to bring us to that place. To the place where we look in the mirror and we can't see any difference between that woman and us. The place where we look in the mirror and we cannot think of any person in human history that behaved worse than we have the capability of. To bring us to that place where we know that our potential for evil goes beyond our deepest imagination. For the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And when we come to that awareness, and people through the ages have given various names to that process, They've called it the dark night of the soul. They've called it the path of the cross. They've called it the deeper life, death to self. I don't care what you call it, it does not feel good. As God begins to strip away from us self-confidence, self-reliance, self-trust, self-righteousness, and brings us to the place where we look in the mirror and say, there's nothing good, I don't have anything good to offer. And then we hear from Calvary, I love you. But God, look at me. I know. I've always known. I love you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I died for you knowing all of this. I cherish you. I value you. I have redeemed you. And you are mine. And when you come to that place, the love that begins to whelm up in your heart for, for God is effusive, spontaneous, full of rich abandon because like that woman I'm not embarrassed to do anything for Jesus oh I love him the only way you can love like that is to see your depravity and to experience his grace and we're all in the same boat
If your love life for God suffers this morning, I submit to you that it's because you haven't become acquainted with yourself yet. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean all the way full to the tippy top, you have to be empty of yourself. As long as you're hanging on to a piece of you, you're crowding out a place for him. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you have to be emptied of yourself. That's not a mental exercise you can do in a prayer. That's a process that God works in your life to where you have no confidence left in anything in you. And you cast it all on him. And then in the brokenness of your humility, the Holy Spirit will leak out of you and through the cracks and touch others. We can't do anything without Jesus. But when he is leaking out of the cracks of our lives, real, eternal, significant ministry is occurring. The scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due season he will raise you up. Listen, friend, when you're on that path with God and he is stripping you of self, you're going to think that you're going to be destroyed. You're going to think that you're going to be left bleeding on the side of the road. We cling to self desperately for fear that we're going to get lost and never be found again. But I want you to know you're in good hands with Jesus. It's not his purpose to destroy you and ruin your life and leave you ineffective and disgraced. That's not his goal. His goal is to break you so that he can raise you, to empty you so that he can fill you, to make you see so that you can love. That process ends a lot of ugly things in our lives. You will stop judging other people because you're just right there. Your love for God will be full and your ministry will be powerful. Are you willing to go that path? Do you want that? Do you want to be full of His Spirit? Invite Him to do the work. You're in good hands. He will not destroy you. He will lift you up in due time. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you this morning that there is nothing about us that you will ever discover because you know it all. And that you have loved us anyway. Thank you for giving your life for us rising again that we can live in the fullness of your resurrection 
by your grace. By your grace, may we go to the cross and come through the grave to newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.